Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low carbon, high energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Well, hello and welcome to the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS. I am your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low carbon, high energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. So today we've got a guest. I call him Bart. We go way back. Bart, I've got a slightly embarrassing story here. I have never known and I never will know how to pronounce your last name. So Bart, can you go ahead and one, tell us how to pronounce your name, tell us a little bit about you, where you're from, how we know each other, and and then we'll take it from there. Sounds good. Uh, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Bart Kowajacek, and um, I hope I, I got it right. Um, um, I'm currently chief scientist of Fortescue Metals Group, which is one of the um, leading uh, mining companies globally. Um, uh, my background is effectively, um, you know, in um, mechanical engineering and renewable energy science. I got PhD in um, hydrogen, so I was basically looking at developing catalysts for um, hydrogen production during my PhD. I've been effectively doing um, hydrogen for roughly uh, 13, 14 years now, um, kind of on and off. Um, you know, it's, it's quite exciting what's, what's happening in this space uh, lately. Uh, and, and finally, um, I'm originally from Poland, um, but I'm based in, uh, in Perth, Australia. And um, I basically studied with, with Joe back in Iceland. We studied uh, renewable energy science. I was more into um, hydrogen and fuel cell systems, whereas Joe was uh, doing geothermal. Yeah, thank you for that, Bart. So the, the reason that I wanted to talk to you was because of that, that hydrogen background. But every time... Every time I look at your LinkedIn profile, you've got something else new, something else interesting going on. Recently, you've started to talk about green steel. Can you, for for myself, for the audience, for all of us who don't know what green steel is, can you give me a, a description of what that is? What does it mean to be green steel? Um, sure. So... Um... Look, uh, steel is a big commodity globally. Um, you know, we use steel in uh, many different applications, um, you know, in construction as a construction building material, in uh, cars, in planes, in, uh, you know, um, it, you effectively name it. We, we've been basically producing steel for um, centuries. We, we basically mastered that process. But traditionally, um, steel making industry uses uh, coking coal. More recently, you know, uh, there was a big shift to move away from coking coal and start using natural gas as a, as a reductant for iron ore to produce iron and uh, later steel. Um, the, the reason for that is that, um, you know, carbon content in um, 
natural gas is actually lower than carbon content in uh, coking coal. So to some extent, it's more environmentally friendly. But, um, you know, those emissions from uh, steel industry are estimated annually to uh, contribute roughly 7 to 8% of global CO2 emissions. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's significant. Uh, I think it might be actually fourth largest industrial contributor. First one, I believe, is power generation. Second one is uh, uh, transportation or mobility, if you like. Uh, third one is uh, concrete production or cement production because it also releases significant amounts of CO2. And the fourth one, with 7 to 8%, depending who you ask or which source uh, you basically uh, look at, um, you know, will be uh, steel making. So steel uh, became a major commodity. Um, you know, it's traded globally, it's produced globally. China, obviously, is today uh, the largest um, steel maker, but there are a number of other countries uh, you know, Europe uh, is another big one. U.S. is also um, taking significant share in that industry. Obviously, it's not as big um, in U.S. as it used to be during um, Andrew Carnegie's times, but um, it's it's still significant commodity and still um, you know big industry in the U.S. So, um, in terms of um, green steel, green steel is basically a environmentally friendly um, alternative that basically does not release um, CO2 uh, during production process or um, releases very insignificant amounts of CO2. So it's within the limits what you would call green. Um, you know, compar- uh, comparatively to um, um, traditional coking coal or natural gas, those CO2 emissions are very insignificant. So, um, you know, green steel is actually gaining a lot of um, attention globally, especially in Europe. But also, um, I guess, to some extent in China, although um, Chinese steelmakers are for now only talking about it. They don't take any action. But, you know, um, they are aware of this uh, new alternative commodity to steel emerging. And uh, I think that they are actually quite worried that, uh, you know, it, it can become quite large and quite significant in terms of market share. So they are definitely um, interested to explore what it means. Um Green steel, effectively, there are a number of pathways to produce it. You can uh, you can use traditional uh, blast furnace or uh, direct reduced iron process. And instead of using coking coal or uh, natural gas, you can actually replace those two reductants with uh, green hydrogen. So effectively, hydrogen that is produced uh, via water electrolysis, so water splitting, in other words, using um, renewable energy. And in that case, uh, you know, instead of actually uh, attaching this oxygen in iron ore to reduce it into iron um, and, and produce um, iron and CO2 in the process, which is byproduct CO2, um, you would basically use hydrogen. And in that case, when you actually strip that iron ore or iron oxide from oxygen to uh, produce pure iron, um, you combine this oxygen with hydrogen and produce water vapor because it's done at high temperature. So effectively, your um, only byproduct or only uh, you know um, pollutant, if you like, although it's it's not really pollutant, is basically a water vapor. So that, that that's what you would call uh, green steel. You can also use um, other green reductants. So for example, another big one would be uh, green ammonia. So green ammonia is again. Uh, you know, alternative to traditional ammonia, which basically is heavily reliant on natural gas. Um, but green ammonia is basically produced with uh, 
green hydrogen again, which is produced from uh, water electrolysis. And, um, you know, if you use green um, electrons and green hydrogen in uh, ammonia production process, you can make it green as well. And ammonia is another um, good re reductant for um, iron oxide to produce um, iron and then uh, take it to the next step, which is uh, steel production by doping with a uh, number of other elements, including carbon. Um, so some other pathways to produce um, green steel might be um, via electrochemical pathways. And there is a um, startup, which is a spin-off from um, MIT in, um, in Boston. Uh, the company is actually called Boston Metal, and they developed this um, high-temperature um, uh, electrolysis process, uh, which they which they call um, um, molten oxide electrolysis. Um, in that case, they basically use uh, high temperature to uh, basically melt uh, various oxides, which are which become uh, liquid, and that th those oxides uh, in liquid phase become your electrolyte. You then basically dissolve um, iron ore or iron oxide. And uh, you basically apply electricity to, uh, you know, separate hydrogen and oxygen, uh, sorry, um, iron and oxygen um, and, and produce um, iron in this process because it's also high temperature. You can um, simultaneously dope um, your iron and basically make steel in, uh, you know, a single kind of pot process. Um, some other pathways uh, include low temperature electrolysis, although... Uh, those are, you know, in early stages, they are emerging, but there are a number of advantages um, to, to basically produce um, iron or steel uh, at low temperature, especially when you deal with uh, highly intermittent uh, power supply, like wind and solar. Um, you know, um, it becomes tricky with intermittency because... Um, you, you cannot basically sustain that high um, operating temperature. So uh, with, with uh, basically uh, reducing iron ore at low temperature, you can effectively switch on and off your process on demand. So let's, let's take a step back. Sure. When we're talking about, so we're talking about the process right now of making steel. Mm -hmm. So making steel is taking an iron oxide and stripping off the oxygen to basically high grade your iron to a, a pure iron substance. And then you add in what, what's that part you add in? Is that nickel that you add into it to make steel? Well, it, it, it really depends what type of steel, but yes, nickel is, a, is one of those. You also add roughly, uh, you know, it depends on type of steel. It's uh, roughly 3% of carbon. Um, and, and there are some other dopants or, or elements that you would basically alloy uh, this iron with, uh, again, depending on uh, type and grade of your steel um, and, and, and your end application. But uh, yes, in a nutshell, that, that's correct. Okay. So that process of stripping off the oxygen and adding in other stuff, that basically takes a, a high amount of energy is what I'm hearing you say. Uh, yes, and, and, you know, traditionally that energy is basically supplied in form of uh, fossil fuels, so uh, either coking coal or natural gas. And because you actually consume those fossil fuels in, in the process, uh, you actually release significant amounts of uh, CO2. So um, your, your fossil fuels are basically used both to deliver that um, energy in form of heat, 
but also they are used as a reductant. So effectively, you know, uh, they allow you to to take those um, oxygens from uh, iron oxide or iron ore and uh, purify it. So with the with the process of using fossil fuels, it sounds like you're only going from your iron ore directly to a a high graded pure pure iron because you're heating it up and you're removing the oxygen. Is that a a overall less energy intensive process? Well, so, so majority of energy and majority of CO2 um, is actually uh, consumed in that initial step, which is basically reduction of um, iron, iron oxide to iron. So, you know, you take oxides and you basically strip those oxides from oxygen to make uh, pure iron. That's the most uh, energy consuming part. Once you actually have your uh, pure iron, you would then use something like, um, you know, electric arc furnace, to, uh, to basically convert it further into, uh, into steel. And again, um, in that process, you would, uh, in that second step, you would also remove some impurities because effectively your um, iron ore feedstock is not pure iron oxide. There are some other um, impurities that uh, you, know, you would like to remove in the process. Uh, some major impurities um, would be silica and uh, alumina. And effectively, um, they are, um, you know, um, not welcomed in the, in that initial pro- product, so you would you would uh, basically uh, like to remove them, and you can do it um, during that second stage. So you you remove your impurities, and then you basically add some um, other elements, or if you like, you, you dope your iron with uh, other elements, uh, and and uh, by doing that, you can basically produce different uh, steel grades, different. Uh, you know, uh, steel um, products for different applications. Okay. So one thing that I kept hearing was the was the word green. You say green steel, green hydrogen, green ammonia. Now, I've heard a lot about hydrogen, blue hydrogen, teal hydrogen, green hydrogen. It, are these are these colors? Are they the same for steel? Can you can you explain to me what what those colors mean? Um, yeah. So look, uh, green hydrogen is basically, in a nutshell, hydrogen that is produced in uh, water electrolysis. So you would basically um, split water to produce hydrogen and oxygen. If you use um, you know renewable energy to actually facilitate that process, your um, resulting hydrogen will be considered green. Um, Blue hydrogen uh, would be hydrogen that basically is produced from um, fossil fuels, but um, you actually apply uh, carbon capture and sequestration in the process. So effectively, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of um, zero carbon in the end because you captured that uh, CO2. Traditionally, if you don't do this uh, carbon capture and storage, your hydrogen would be considered gray. There, are also, uh, th- there can be also brown hydrogen if you use uh, fossil fuels that are even more kind of um, CO2 intensive, like uh, you know coal or uh, or something along these lines. Um, the diesel would be another good example of brown uh, hydrogen. Um, so you know th- there is also actually pink hydrogen. Um, some people call it uh, yellow hydrogen. So that's basically hydrogen that is produced uh, 
using nuclear um, energy. It's also uh, CO2 free, but uh, effectively because you use nuclear, um, it basically uh, deserves a separate color. And again, some some people call it uh, pink, some others call it um, yellow hydrogen. Um, in, in terms of steel, um, in a nutshell, those colors are similar, but the, the problem of uh, this nomenclature is, is actually more difficult in terms of steel because um, you actually need to answer this, this um, essential question, what is green steel? Uh, you know, to make green steel effectively, you don't want to release any CO2 in the process. But the process is not only that uh, end step where you take your iron ore and you basically reduce it um, using green hydrogen or other um, green uh, pathways, but also, you know, um, your feedstock needs to be green. And mining industry uh, today uses uh, vast amounts of diesel, natural gas, etc., to actually extract that iron ore uh, from the ground. So, um, you know, your, if, if your um, feedstock, which is iron ore, is not green, effectively, can we call that um, end product green steel? In my opinion, uh, we cannot, but, uh, you know, there are a number of disputes globally and uh, the field is um, uh, so immature at this point that, uh, you know, uh, we will probably have to wait a couple of years until um, we get consensus on that. Yeah, that's a really good point, because when we're talking about life cycle analysis, we really need to analyze every single step. Exactly. And I think that's that's one of those things that most people don't don't really think about when it comes to electric vehicles or steel or really anything that has has even even silica in it. All of that was coming from the mining industry. And all of that ultimately has some type of carbon footprint with it. Exactly. So, so with that, what, I guess, if we want to get to green steel, one of those first steps is decarbonizing iron mining. What, what kind of ways have you thought about as you think about this green steel question? How can we start to decarbonize mining? while we're also thinking about lithium extraction is mining electric vehicles have lots of mining ore that is ultimately going into them so how do we how do we get out of that circular process so, so um th that's a really good question and you know one, one thing is to actually decarbonize mining whether it's um iron ore mining or any other type of uh mining uh, nickel mining copper mining lithium mining as you mentioned but another thing is to um, actually use more sustainable processes um, in that extraction. You know, a lot of mining today uses um, highly concentrated sulfuric acid or uh, hydrochloric acid, which are, uh, you know, very toxic, very reactive. Um, so basically moving away from those, uh, uh, you know, toxic and uh, kind of uh, hazardous acids towards something more green, more green um, extraction processes is another, um, you know, avenue that we should explore. But in terms of decarbonizing mining, I think uh, many miners globally, um, the, at least the, the largest ones, you know, like BHP and uh, Vale in Brazil, they are actually doing quite well in terms of um, decarbonizing their fixed plant. So basically, you know, um, 
plant that is responsible for um, extraction and processing of that iron ore. Um, they basically started deploying um, wind and solar across their um, mining sites where possible, where um, you know renewable energy conditions allow for that. Valley actually um, is in quite unique um, position because geographically they are surrounded by um, landscape that allows to uh, deploy uh, very large scale hydropower schemes. So, um, you know, they can, they can produce uh, hydroelectricity, which is uh, less intermittent than wind and solar. So effectively, you don't need to support it with, uh, with batteries to get this, uh, you know, base load. Um, in terms of decarbonizing uh, mobile applications in the mines, um, I guess a lot of that will come from batteries and uh, hydrogen. Um, there might be also a place for ammonia, where you know ammonia will be used in uh, um, larger and uh, higher power demand applications, like mining trucks, for example. Um, in that case, you wouldn't actually um, convert ammonia in fuel cell. You would actually just burn it in traditional combustion engine uh, because it's simpler. And uh, you know, fuel cells today don't exist at the scale that would allow them to be deployed in uh, uh, mining trucks or, or larger applications, for example, shipping vessels. That, that's another um, you know, um, scope that should be um, decarbonized if we want to talk about green steel. Um, you know, um, extraction of iron ore can be done in one place, but actually that processing and processing can be done elsewhere. So, for example, you know, um, Vale extracts... Um, iron ore in Brazil, and then they ship it across the globe to, uh, to China for uh, processing or to, to other customers in, in um, other countries. So that, that shipping also contributes uh, quite a lot of um, CO2 emissions overall. And today, um, you know, shipping basically relies heavily on uh, bunkering fuel, which is, again, um, very um, CO2 intensive. Um, so... Um, I guess, you know, th there are ways to decarbonize mining operations. Renewables would be one of them or renewables and a mixture of uh, batteries to supply this, to provide this uh, baseload. And then, you know, batteries and uh, fuel cells, hydrogen fuel cells and potentially ammonia to decarbonize uh, mobile fleet. Um, and, and then there are also, um, you know, alternative processes to actually make that extraction and processing more environmentally friendly so that it doesn't produce uh, waste or that the waste uh, produced in the process is not as hazardous. So, for example, uh, lithium extraction, you know, um, recently Tesla or Elon Musk himself actually announced a new process that will allow um, very cost-effective extraction of lithium using, um, you know, um, sea salt. So that, that's quite exciting. Traditionally, um, Extraction of uh, lithium would again rely on uh, some nasty acids, but uh, with this new process, there is a, there is a scope to actually make uh, batteries more environmentally friendly. And I guess uh, you know environmentalists have been quite vocal uh, last few years. Uh, there is a lot of push for uh, battery electric vehicles, but then environmentalists come to the picture and they're like, "Are you aware that your batteries are not as uh, green as as they claim they are?" So, um, you know, with, with those new processes, we can actually um, make it more sustainable.
Yeah, that's really cool. Because I think that's the, that is one of those big questions of how do you, how do you really make every single step of the process sustainable? And I'm glad you brought up the shipping vessels because that was, that was actually one of my next questions is when we're talking about steel, we all, well, me doing my work in Alaska, I know that there's a lot of mines, but there's not that many, many uh, smelters there. And while we were in Alaska, or not Alaska, while we were in Iceland, we went and toured that Alcoa smelter that was running all on high hydro. And the reason that was so, so valuable, the reason that made sense was because it was, it was cheap green electricity. So Alcoa could send all this aluminum up to Iceland, have it smelted and then send it back. And it, it's one of those that, that I just wonder where, where will we be able to find enough green energy and low carbon energy to make that a, a full scale operation. And then also the idea of going from one place to the next, ultimately we need to decarbonize that as well. Um, so mm-hmm. go ahead. So, so to, to, to that point um, on Iceland um, and, and Alcoa, um, you know, the, the process that were, was deployed in Iceland was effectively green because um, it was basically uh, aluminum processing using hydropower. So completely green electrons. But even, even with hydropower, there is a lot of, uh, you know, question about sustainability of um, hydropower. Um, you know, sustainability is one and then uh, social impact of hydropower is another one. You effectively have to build a very large dam and you basically create reservoirs. So you have, you have to displace, um, you, you often have to displace, you know, people. Um, you basically take some uh, land from, uh, from animals, from di- different species. Um, you also dam that river. So effectively, the dam stops uh, nutrients. So down the stream, you know, um, your, your land becomes uh, less fertile. Um, you know, things like that. And also, uh, when you build that uh, very large hydropower dam, you have to use a uh, vast amount of uh, concrete. And concrete, again, uh, releases uh, heaps of um, CO2 in the process. So uh, it's, it's probably third largest industrial contributor of CO2 globally. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. And it's it's a very relevant point these days because in the Pacific Northwest and, and over in California and Nevada, we've got very, very significant droughts that are occurring that are, that are actually causing a decrease in hydropower. Mm. And then there are actually discussions of removing uh, hydro dams along the Snake River because of the, because of, uh, traditional salmon runs that now just aren't getting the returns that they used to get in terms of spawn going out to sea and then coming back. And they've, they've concluded that those salmon runs are, are at risk because of the dams on the river. And Mm. so they've, they've decided that it's more important to have this ecological and for lack of a better term, a sustainable resource in the fish, as opposed to the uh, 
the, I guess, renewable power coming from the hydro dams, even though it has been releasing the CO2 with all of the concrete. So it it's a very, these are all the different layers of nuance and layers of, of complexity when we really talk about the idea of decarbonization, deep decarbonization and, and trying to get to net zero. And I, I appreciate this conversation because we started with the idea of green steel, yet somehow now we're talking about salmon runs in the Pacific Northwest of, of the U.S., and, and, and to that point on hydropower, I'm actually aware of that, of that problem and, uh, you know, um, idea of actually uh, getting rid of uh, hydropower dams. It's not only in the U.S., but also uh, there is this global movement uh, to some extent. And uh, International Rivers is probably uh, the most vocal um, NGO globally that is kind of, um, you know, pushing for uh, uh, free rivers, um, I guess hydropower free or dam free rivers, but you know uh, hydropower is one issue uh, with, with those social and environmental impacts. But you know e- even um, wind turbines. Um, some environmentalists say that they kill uh, birds and, and things like that. They produce a lot of noise, so they they might be uh, environmentally friendly. They don't produce uh, CO two or they don't release CO two. Although again, um, you know foundation of uh, wind turbine. Uh, relies on uh, concrete. So again, there, there will be some CO2 associated with that development as well. But also, um, you know, that that um, noise pollution is uh, is uh, basically an, another issue. So killing birds and, and uh, noise pollution, uh, you know, n- nothing seems to be a kind of ultimate solution to our um, climate change problems. So, you know, we, we basically move away from fossil fuels. We deploy those new technologies, but they are not issue free. So it's, it's actually quite interesting what uh, this, this uh, you know, decarbonization and, and carbon free future will look like, uh, because uh, obviously those, those initial technologies and those initial solutions are not um, issue free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the, what I hope is one of the big ideas that people will get out of not only this show, but, but all these shows is that it is a, nothing is issue free and we are always going to be looking for the next best solution. But one of my favorite quotes, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And it's the same with trying to find solutions. There's always going to be a better solution. Exactly. I, so uh, I, I believe it's going to be a iterative process. You know, we need to start somewhere. We need to basically start addressing this uh, issue of climate change step by step. And, you know, um, as we go, we will basically refine those solutions and we will make them better. And another um, interesting aspect is, uh, you know, um, technology-based solutions, but, uh, you know, um, IUCN, you are probably aware of IUCN. IUCN is International um, Union for Conservation of Nature. They actually um, introduced a while ago this concept of uh, nature-based solutions. So nature-based solutions are um, extremely simple, uh, nature-based solutions. So, you know, one example would be uh, planting trees to uh, 
to um, address climate change by um, harvesting CO2 from the atmosphere. Another uh, another one would be uh, you know planting, for example, uh, mangroves uh, to address um, you know um, loss of uh, uh, land by um, erosion or, or um, you know things like that. Um, so so th- those nature based solutions are probably not not as effective as technology-based solutions, but they are extremely simple and uh, very cheap to to deploy. So there are are two aspects of that decarbonization. One would be basically technology-driven and the other one would be, uh, I guess, nature-driven, if you like. Hmm. So when when you talk about technology solutions, I've I've been wondering this since we started talking, when we're talking about green steel, how do you actually account for all of the different steps, accounting for the amount of CO2 you're producing to ultimately be able to say a, a steel product that you're getting out of the refinery, or out of the smelter, how do, you, how do you actually get to the point of being able to say that that's net zero? Like, where's the accountability for that process? So, so, so um I, I guess accountability for that process does not really exist today. Um, you know, there is a lot of discussion. There are some initial pilot projects in Europe and elsewhere, but you know, um, the, the field is uh, highly unregulated today. So, um, you know, it, it's not like you can actually get um, certification for your uh, green steel. It may, it will likely happen in a couple of years, but as, as of today, uh, you know. Green steel is only emerging as potential new green commodity alternative to traditional steel. But, uh, you know, when you look at uh, all those different steps along the value chain, actually the most CO2 is released in that uh, reduction process. So when you take iron ore and you uh, basically strip it from oxygen to produce this pure iron, uh, that can account for um, up to... uh, you know, 88% of total uh, CO2 emissions in that process or in that value chain. So um, it, it's significant. So e- even, you know, decarbonizing that single step already uh, contributes a lot to, uh, to our, um, you know, fight with climate change. Hmm. Very interesting. So the one more idea that came up while we were talking about all of this, you mentioned low temperature electrolysis and the the idea of the low temperature part coming in because of intermittency with things like solar and wind. And recently on LinkedIn, I saw a a company who who's unveiling a an iron based battery. I think their pilot project might be might be a one megawatt hour project. Do you know anything about that? Do you have uh, any insight on on iron-based batteries? Um, yes, sure. So I, I believe you are actually referring to uh, Form Energy, which is uh, based in uh, Massachusetts. Um, they, they received significant funding to actually take their um, iron air battery uh, development to a uh, next uh, stage. And effectively to commercialize it, um, the advantage of using um, you know iron um, for energy storage is that you know it's it's uh, abundant, uh, it's it's extremely cheap compared to lithium. It may not be as um, 
efficient, uh, also uh, probably not as light. Also, um, you know, reduction potential of iron compared to lithium is significantly lower. So effectively, your resulting iron air battery will be significantly heavier and uh, way more bulky compared to a, a lithium battery. But it doesn't matter as long as you don't want to uh, deploy it in a mobile or portable applications. So those batteries can be actually excellent and an extremely cheap source of uh, uh, energy or, or storage uh, for stationary applications, large-scale grid uh, storage applications. So, you know, um, what what Form is doing is, is quite exciting, but, uh, you know, they are not the only ones. Um, there, there are some other startups in the U.S. that are uh, trying to develop uh, similar iron-based batteries. Also, you know, um, not many people are aware, but actually... Um, Back in the days, uh, Thomas Edison um, invented this battery, which was based on a mixture of uh, nickel and iron. So one electrode was actually uh, nickel-based, the other one was uh, iron-based. And, uh, you know, um, those batteries uh, back in the days were used to some extent, but obviously some some better batteries uh, came to the picture and we abandoned them. So, um, you know, uh, lithium is currently the major battery. There is a lot of, um, you know, uh, buzz about uh, vanadium flow batteries. But again, vanadium is, is quite expensive. So overall, the, the cost of that uh, vanadium flow battery will be still uh, quite high. But um, I, I think um, those iron-based batteries bring a lot of promise in terms of uh, cheap energy uh, storage solutions. Yeah, it sounds like they they could bring some some storage solutions, and then it's almost me thinking thinking innovatively. You could use those iron based batteries, which then takes overall potentially less less energy in order to go and and refine and make compared to a lithium battery, and then you can also offset through grid stabilization and forecasting, you can start offsetting your wind and your solar. So now you can actually use the iron to then make, I guess, greener steel or low carbon steel through through almost an iterative process of using the iron to save energy to then go back into a low temperature iron electrolysis process. The, the, that's definitely interesting aspect and you know funny enough um those iron uh, iron air batteries the way they operate is um you know um charging uh those batteries effectively involves uh starting with iron oxide pure iron oxide so it's not iron ore but it's basically purified iron oxide and you again strip it uh, from oxygen so you end up with iron and th that's basically your charge state and then when you basically introduce oxygen, you basically reoxidize re that um, iron in your battery. And uh, by doing that, you release charge. So you're, that, that's basically your discharging uh, phase of, of, the, of the battery uh, you know, operation. So you, you, you can do it basically in cycles. And uh, th there are many synergies with that uh, reduction to produce uh, green steel. Um, so, you know, um, th there are many synergies actually between those two processes in the way they operate. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. So I've kept you for a while here. I think I've I think I've got an understanding of green steel. Is there anything else about green steel that you wanted to you wanted to say that we maybe didn't cover? Uh, no, look, I, I think we covered most of the basics. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely interesting uh, field. Um, steel production is uh, is a big industry globally, and steel itself is a is a major commodity. So it's actually exciting what is happening in this space. Uh, you know, it's still early stages, early days, but um, stay tuned, and uh, you know, hopefully, your next car will um, basically, uh, you know have some components made of green steel. Also, I guess, uh, last point that I would like to mention is that uh, McKinsey and company actually have done um, extensive research to um, evaluate uh, customers, um, you know, um, trends. And uh, it it seems that um, customers are willing to pay up to 15% more uh, if their uh, product is green. So, uh, you know, that, that green steel initially, because we are still in early stages, technology may not be uh, completely mature or mature to uh, extend to compete with those, you know, century old technologies that, that basically use uh, fossil fuels. But um, that, that, that init- for that reason, this, this initial um, green steel might be uh, more expensive, but it seems that um, customers are today uh, well aware about different issues related to uh, climate change and sustainability and they are actually uh, willing to take this uh, burden and pray uh, and and pay a premium for their um, green products so that, that's actually quite interesting and uh, quite encouraging same time yeah yeah that's fascinating and I think that's a that's a trend we're seeing across really across the the oil and gas industry from what i'm hearing there are a lot of companies who are stepping up they are willing to take lower paybacks on green investments and there are the the investors in those companies are are accepting that they see and realize that in order to decarbonize a company or decarbonize an industry they're willing to to not make as much money and it's the same same thing you point out here with mckinsey that we as consumers are actually willing to pay more if we have a green product so that's a i think it's a it's a sign of the times it's something we're seeing as a as a society we we are asking for this and we want to see it done and we're willing to pay for it Hmm. so that's pretty cool definitely so i've got a few rapid fire questions for sure. green steel when do you think there will be the first green steel product um so, so look um th- there are some pilot projects in europe um first green iron and green steel was already produced um on a small scale so now basically the next step will be to uh you know take those pilot projects and uh scale them scale them up to uh the commercial scale um, or industrial scale, if you like, uh, that will also change economics because you know those small-scale uh, pilot projects are deployed um, quite cost-effectively to actually prove the concept. But you know, 
in terms of economics, they are terrible. Um, you know, it, effectively, it, it doesn't stack up. Uh, but but that, that, that's that's not the point there. You basically want to show that um, it works, and uh, then you basically scale it up, and, uh, you know, you bring economy of scale, and that basically uh, makes it cost-competitive or or close to be cost competitive. It's always to uh, it's always difficult to make those green commodities, whether it's green hydrogen, green ammonia, green fertilizers, or green green steel or green metals, uh, cost competitive with their um, you know um, gray or um, fossil fuel based uh, alternatives because of uh, you know technology maturity scale. Um, you know th- those those fossil fuel technologies have been refined, optimized, etc. for uh, for centuries. So it's it's really hard um, for those emerging technologies to compete with them at this at this point. But hopefully, economy of scale and uh, you know um, customer awareness will basically address that issue. Another another big uh, tool to um, to addressing it is basically carbon taxes. Um, so um, you know Europe is basically uh, already leading um, in terms of carbon taxes and that basically um, that those carbon taxes will be a big enablers of uh, you know renewables but then also uh, green commodities that are um, reliant on um, renewables yep well I am gonna save the carbon tax discussion for for somebody else I'm sure, sure. we'll have a carbon tax guy on here eventually or girl Uh Next question: When will we be net zero as a society? Hopefully by twenty thirty. That that's um, that's our aim. Uh, that that's something that will be discussed at um, COP twenty six um, this year. So um, you know, I, I feel that um, COP this year will be very different compared to uh, previous COP meetings uh, in in previous years. You know, um, previously we we basically talked about those issues. I feel that this year um, COP will be more kind of aligned towards um, action. So there will be some serious uh, decisions uh, made at COP and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, that will allow us to uh, become um, net zero carbon by 2030. It's It's a massive goal. It's already 2021. Uh, so we, we've got nine years, but we, we really need to act fast on climate change um, because it's it's getting worse and worse. So, um, you know, unless we start doing something, unless we start acting, um, you know, we will never get there. And I think, I think um, you know, Paris Agreement was kind of a milestone. Many, it, it, it allowed to um, realize for many people, from many, for many governments, for many companies that we actually need to do something. But, uh, you know, it took a couple of years, but I believe that uh, 2021 is actually quite unique in terms of our discussions and, and actions on, on climate change and becoming a, you know, carbon-free uh, society. All right. I like it. So what is the most important book you've ever read? Most important book? Um, I don't think I have most important book, but you know um, it's it's quite relevant. The last book I've read is called um, "The Rare Metals War." Um, it's actually quite fascinating because um, you know it gives you a um, completely new perspective on uh, renewables. So um, you know, for example, wind turbines utilize many rare earth uh, metals, 
which are produced in China. And the way they are produced um, is very environmentally um, unsustainable. So, you know, that, that whole industry, mining industry in China is extremely polluting. They don't care about uh, environment. They don't care about any codes. Um, you know, um, people basically get cancer because of that uh, uh, mining and uh, associated uh, activities. So again, that mining is um, really uh, heavy in terms of uh, processing and uh, Chemicals used in that processing are quite nasty, um, you know, acids, alkaline bases, um, the different types of chemicals that end up, uh, they are actually not treated. They end up in, in salt, they, they end up in rivers, and effectively they end up on our tables. So, you know, um, th that book was actually quite exciting. I, I believe I uh, finished it over the weekend, um, which is quite unusual because normally um, I don't have that much time. No, I'm, I'm quite busy. I try to uh, stay busy and uh, I read books probably over a period of two weeks. But this one was, was really exciting. I, I finished it over two days. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to have to pick up a copy of that. So now if you have one, you can ask me a question. Um, I guess, uh, you know, understanding your background and, and what you've done in a geothermal field, um, how do you see geothermal? You know, th there is a lot of excitement finally, I, I feel, about geothermal. And I'm, I'm excited about geothermal as well because it's the most reliable source of electricity, green electricity today. You know, wind uh, is highly um, intermittent and highly unpredictable. You know, the, the wind profile can change on a daily basis. Uh, solar is probably less... Um, uh, unpredictable, but again, still highly intermittent. Uh, depending mm -hmm. on uh, where you are, you can get, let's say, up to 12 hours of, uh, you know, um, solar energy. Um, then we have hydropower. Hydropower, um, you know, it's, it's quite continuous in terms of power generation, but it really depends on how large is your reservoir. There are also some uh, intermittency issues. And um, more, more importantly, inter, uh, sorry, seasonality issues with hydropower. Whereas geothermal actually, uh, you know, is uh, allows you to um, to get continuous power generation. So that that's actually quite exciting. Where, where do you see geothermal in next few years? Yeah. So I see geothermal as I think in the next few years it is it's going to take off in terms of a lot of a lot more research is going to be done and some of the big questions are going to start getting answered. Right now there's a few different a few different avenues that you can go with geothermal. I like to compare it to say say a fruit tree. There's fruit that has fallen and is now rotting. There's the fruit that is there easy pickings and and kind of eye level. And then there's the fruit that's a little bit higher up that you have to work a little bit more for. The fruit that's on the ground rotting, that is the the waste energy that we're just throwing away, save co-production from oil and gas wells or depleted oil and gas reservoirs that are now just water reservoirs. There's a lot of heat there that we're already producing that we're just throwing out. That is energy that we can use, that we can use to decarbonize both the oil and gas industry in the in the near term, but also we can turn that into some type of geothermal 
resource, whether it's for heating and cooling of houses or whether we somehow high grade that heat into electricity. And then there's the there's the the fruit that's kind of all been picked, but there's still some low hanging fruit. That's kind of traditional geothermal. We still have to de-risk some of it, but those are still there. They're readily available. We just need to find them. And then the fruit that you have to work for, that is enhanced geothermal systems and closed loop geothermal systems. Those ones, I think we're hopefully five years away from, maybe 10 years away from, to really figuring those out and being able to start implementing those across the board. But the, I think the important part is that traditional geothermal, if you can de-risk and find those, they're going to be cheaper. And the, the heat resources that we're already throwing away from oil and gas wells, that stuff, if, if you can find a use for that heat, you are literally saving money because right now you're just throwing it out. So that's, that's kind of where I see geothermal. There are resources that can be found that can be used today. And some of these we're talking about, we're talking about a few hundred thousand dollars of investment all the way up to hundreds of millions of dollars in investment. So really it's just, it's kind of what, what size investment do you want to do and what kind of power do you want to generate? But as you point out, all of those are very high, uh, very high capacity factors. They're pretty much always running. So these are, if we're talking about deep carbonization and really cutting emissions, geothermal is the way to go. Hmm. So that's kind of where I see the geothermal industry. I'm, I'm excited to be in it and, and I'm excited to be kind of sharing that with, with the OGGN's audience OGGN stands for the Oil and Gas Global Network. So I'm glad to be sharing it with them as we talk about decarbonization and energy transition and all of those buzzwords that really ultimately just mean we're we're moving to new energy sources and we're diversifying the energy landscape. But with with that Bart, I want to thank you again for joining me here on the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast. Thank you to everybody else who joined us listening in. If you want to hear more great stories from the energy industry, you can connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or go to OGGN.com to check out all the other podcasts. We also have, if you are in, in Houston, Texas, if you're ever visiting, Go check out the Canon. That's where I record all of my live shows and all of my in-person shows. It's a great facility. If you mention OGGN, you get a free day pass. And I guess that's it. So Bart, thanks. Thanks for coming on. And I guess the next time I'm in Perth, I'm going to have to give you a call. Definitely. Uh, f- thanks again, Joe, for having me. And, uh, you know, great to um, reconnect after uh, a decade since um, <laughs> our Icelandic experience. <laughs> yes, it has been a while. Well, until next time, 
Thanks, everybody. See you later. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.